Welcome to Tube Talk, the show dedicated to helping you become a better video creator so you can get more views, subscribers, and build your audience. Brought to you by vidIQ. Download for free at vidIQ.com. Oh, yes! Welcome back to another episode of Tube Talk presented by vidIQ. I am your host, Viper, the man about tech executive producer at the IQ, and oh man, we have major, mega YouTube news that we got to talk about today. So, came down last night from on high, from YouTube algorithm production lead himself, Tybro Prey, he said on Twitter that YouTube has finally created a bridge between short-form and long-form content. So, here is the skinny, you all. Up until this point, if you created a YouTube short and somebody watched that short, it would not link back to any of your long-form content. It would just automatically move that user on to the next YouTube short. But with this bridge that they have now created, YouTube will now actively engage in recommending your long-form content if someone watches one of your YouTube shorts. I cannot tell you how major this development is because this makes it a lot easier for us creators to intermingle short form and long form content. Me personally, you would not catch Viper putting a YouTube short on his YouTube channel because of how disjointed the analytics were between short form and long form content. But now that we have this bridge in place that will bridge short form content to your long form, I might be more willing now to incorporate YouTube shorts on my channel with my regular long form content now that my long form content will be recommended against my YouTube shorts. This is major, major, major. YouTube continues to make their platform creator-friendly, make it easier for us to understand the analytics and how they work. YouTube is always providing more and more ways for creators to make money on the platform. And now that they are really trying to push YouTube shorts, they are now making it make more sense for us to dig into YouTube shorts now that they're going to bridge to our long-form content. So, if you're a short creator that also does long-form content, this is very exciting to you. If you're primarily a short-only creator, this is not going to mean much, but maybe you thought about making long-form content, but you didn't because of the disjointedness before. Now you might consider making long-form content because now you know that your long-form will be recommended against your short. So this is very exciting news. It is a very exciting time for creators as a whole, and I am happy that this stuff is happening. So shout out to YouTube for continually upgrading and improving their platform and making it the best place for creators to create content and monetize and do all of the things that help us build an audience and do what we love. Now, I realize I've been slacking on the last few podcasts with the shout out. So on the Twitters right now, and let's see who has been shouting out Tube Talk lately. First up, we got Carly Lynn. She recommending Tube Talk to somebody who was looking for uh, creators and podcasts to follow. So Carly Lynn, I appreciate you shouting out Tube Talk in your tweet. So thank you so, so much. Hopefully uh, you and Axel are continuing to enjoy the podcast. Axel, I see you, baby. What's going on? <laughs> also, next up, we got Jeremy Culver. He said it's become a routine that every Thursday he walks his dog and listens to Viper on Tube Talk. Man, I appreciate you, man. Every Thursday, you're walking your dog and you're listening to Viper. Wow, that is pretty legit, Jeremy. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. Hopefully the podcast continues to bring you value. I appreciate you listening. Of course, it would not be a group of Tube Talk shout out without Rebecca Chan or Rebecca MC, I should say, in the building here. 
Rebecca was last week's guest on the podcast, so she is shouting out to talk as she always does. But she actually had the uh, guest spot on last week's show. So shout out to Rebecca for making time to record that episode with me last week and her continuing support of Tube Talk. Also, we have Orlin Dave, who was listening to my Tube Talk episode I did with Steve Taylor, I think it was a couple of weeks ago. So shout out to Dave. He's talking about one of the things that we talked about in that uh, podcast as it relates to captioning your content. So shout out to that Orlin Dave for listening to Tube Talk with me and Steve Taylor. I love that you guys talk about Tube Talk on the social media. Please continue to do so. Doing so could get you shouted out on a future episode of the podcast. This week, I'm bringing in another rising creator. He is called iCave Dave. He does tech content. We're going to talk to him about his creator journey and the things that he's learned in the two plus years he's been doing YouTube and how he incorporates vidIQ into his creative process. So with that out of the way, let's go ahead, talk to Dave, and let's roll to the podcast. Welcome back to Tube Talk presented by vidIQ. This week, our special guest is a content creator, tech creator, streamer, all the things. We got to welcome in Mr. I Cave Dave to the podcast. What's up, Dave? How you doing, sir? I'm really good. Thank you for having me, Viper. Thank you for making the time to do this with us. I appreciate you. So the first question, Dave, I got to ask you is what brought you to YouTube? So I am one of these uh, pandemic COVID creators, especially on this channel. I've actually been um, doing some stuff on YouTube since around about 2014. So my uh, my trade outside of YouTube uh, has always been the bar industry. So I set up a, a website when I was out of the bar industry very briefly so that I could still kind of share my passion and talk about my knowledge and that kind of thing. Started podcasting and we were, I think, one of the only sort of bar related podcasts in the UK, at least. And uh, during the pandemic, tried to take that into being like a daily kind of thing, a bit of a, a breakfast show for bartenders, if you like. But because all of the bars were closed, there was so little to talk about. It became really, really difficult to do. So did that for a few weeks. It wasn't working. Decided to just give it a rest and uh, started just kind of playing around. I've always been a, a fan of Apple stuff since around about 2010, which is my sort of main topic is, is daily Apple news and started off by making content around the iPad and how you could use the iPad as your kind of daily driver machine instead of using a Mac. And then obviously this was in 2020, which is just before Apple decided to move over to basically putting iPad chips in everything. And uh, so I kind of pivoted to that. And once we hit a thousand subscribers and the watch time, we renamed the channel and, and that all came from the audience actually suggesting the name change. All right. So let's talk about the name for a minute. So the channel name is I Cave Dave. So is that something that you came up with or did the audience come up with that particular name? How did that name come about? So, yeah, we started off the channel being called Living on iPad. That's how it all began. And then as we got to about a thousand subscribers, I'd been doing a segment called uh, iCave Answers, where we basically call the little studio space that I have here, which is essentially the boiler room utility of my house. We've had to stop laundry for the day because the dryer is actually under my desk. But we've been doing this iCave Answers section and we just sort of decided to go, oh, we'll, we'll just call it iCave with David Eden Sangwell, which is my name. And one of the audience went, well, no, it can't be that. It's got to be I Cave Dave. And I was like, yeah, I don't know why I didn't think of that. That sounds so much better. That is pretty cool, man. So uh, as you alluded to earlier, most of your channel is about making Apple content, whether it be Apple news, talking about Apple products, just pretty much all things Apple. Was that always the plan with your channel to be Apple focused or did you have something else in mind and you pivoted to Apple or how did that, how that situation? It actually sort of grew out from being the specifically 
uh, iPad based content originally. That was the plan was just to be really super focused on a niche. But it was because of those iPad processors then going into what is now Apple Silicon that we basically sort of branched out and ended up doing a lot more Mac stuff. And then because I decided I wanted to do a daily show, which we did for about 18 months uh, without missing a day, weekdays, it just became really difficult to actually get enough news to just do it purely on the Mac side of things. And obviously with Apple and a lot of technology, there's a lot of kind of pillar events throughout the year, which you need to really capitalize on. So you have the developers conference in the summer in June, WWDC, you have the iPhone launch events in September pretty much every year apart from during the pandemic which is the only time they ever sort of push that back a little bit and then you get kind of a, a spring event it seems is becoming part of their tradition now so we've got these kind of real pillar times of the year where we really have to capitalize on the content that we can make then and then you sort of cruise in between and have to sort of keep it down but I mean we we were so committed to getting that daily content out and when I say we I mean me But when I talk about the channel, I always say we for some reason, even though my youngest son, we mentioned uh, when we spoke briefly on Clubhouse the other day, my youngest son was diagnosed with leukemia just before the pandemic. And we had to spend some time in hospital during the pandemic. And during that time, because he'd featured, he pops up in the channel every so often when he wanders into the studio, everyone knows him. So even when we went and spent some time in the hospital, he was co-hosting the show with me. and We were answering people's questions from the hospital room. Wow. That is pretty awesome that you can share that experience with your son and hopefully everything go well with him. Yeah, he's he's all recovered now and, and in remission. So everything's been really good. But uh, yeah, it was it was quite a constraint on time. But it also meant that when we were uh, locked down for the pandemic, that we got to just spend time as a family and not go out. We were just looking after him and making sure that he wasn't at any extra risk. Gotcha. So you do Apple content. I have done Apple content in the past, so I know we both understand and realize how packed the Apple niche is, because there are a lot of channels, as you know, Dave, that do Apple-focused content. Your channel currently has over 11,000 subscribers, so I am curious, what makes your channel stand out in such a competitive niche? Because again, there's a bunch of creators doing Apple content, but you've gotten over that 10,000 subscriber uh, mark, which is pretty good for most creators, and you are doing news and focusing on a a subject that is coveted by a lot of creators. So what have you done to make your channel stand out? So there's been a couple of things. I think that consistency right up front was the biggest thing that made the difference. So I think it took me about three months to go from brand new channel to monetized. And we hit the thousand subscribers and the 4,000 hours of watch time about the same time. So it was between June and like July and October uh, in the first year. Um, And I think that that was a big part of it, because when you're starting out, make a lot of content, because the more content you are putting out, the more chances you've got to actually have something hit. The other big thing that I've always focused on is the community aspect. And I I've worked with Team Gary V a little bit. So I look after their Facebook group, which is called First in Line. And a guy called Zane, who used to be my kind of liaison with Team Gary V over there, was just incredible at community management. So the biggest thing for me for the channel was I always wanted to make sure that every comment went answered and that's still the case with over two and a half million views now every comment that has been written in my comment section except maybe in the last 24 to 48 hours at the moment has been answered and that's also been a real sort of mining 
place for me to get content ideas from as well. So as I mentioned earlier, this iCave Answers thing that we do, I ask for iCave Answers questions where people use the hashtag in the comment section every video. And when we have quiet news days, that gives me all of my content. So we just do a QA and a show. And when we have got news, then it gets pegged onto the end. And then we can also kind of break it out as well into more pieces of content later down the line. I'd love to put it onto other platforms as well, but just the physical time that it takes to produce and post-produce everything onto those other platforms as well. A little bit prohibitive at the minute, but uh, we will get there. Gotcha, okay. This episode of Tube Talk is brought to you by the vidIQ mobile app. You can download it for free on the Android or iOS app stores. And it's here to help you do things like keep track of your competition, research your next video idea, optimize videos you've already posted, and more, all on the go. This is the perfect app to have literally in your back pocket while you're out and about and you find yourself with a few free extra minutes. Having the opportunity to sit down and optimize your latest video or research ideas for your upcoming video can be a game changer and save you a bunch of time as you work to create more YouTube content. Again, you can download the vidIQ mobile app for free on Android or iOS. Just search for vidIQ. So I want to ask you about the different types of content that you do on your channel. So mostly as I'm looking through your channel, you do mostly long form, regular videos on demand. I know I see every week you do a live stream recapping the week in Apple News and sprinkle down uh, in there a little bit. I've seen you've done a couple of YouTube shorts. Now we know that YouTube shorts are the hot thing in what YouTube seems to be pushing the most right now. And I'm just curious to get your thoughts on YouTube shorts. What has your experience been with trying to do those? I want to do a lot more of it. And honestly, because I'm I'm not at the point where I've gone full time on YouTube, I'm, you know, making almost daily shows. I mean, this week's been a little bit quieter because we're re- renovating parts of the house, but I would love to be making shorts. I think they probably do need to live on another channel unless you're doing them very occasionally. And it's something that you can do when you're out and about. Maybe it's something that you sprinkle in as like bonus content, almost like Instagram stories or something along those lines where you kind of drop those in as a, a kind of bonus piece which might get you a bit of attention here and there. It might just be something bonus for your audience. But for me, I haven't found any that have stuck, but I also fully acknowledge that I haven't done enough of them to get to that point where I've not had enough swings of that bat to really test it properly. Yeah, I mentioned this earlier in the intro to this podcast, but YouTube just made an announcement about how now they're going to link your short to your longer form content. So before now, if somebody watched your short, it would not link back to your long form video. They would just move on to whatever short would next up in their playlist or whatever. But now YouTube has created a bridge from your short to your long form content. So now when people watch your short video, it will now recommend one of your longer form videos with that short. So I think this is a big step as far as making creators a little bit more comfortable doing short form content because that was my biggest thing. I didn't want to put shorts on my channel at all because I knew they were so disjointed from the long form videos and my primary content is long form videos and I didn't want shorts to mess it up and confuse my audience. But now with the recent change, I think uh, I am a little bit more likely to maybe experiment with shorts now because there is that bridge. So maybe uh, that's something that you might want to consider moving forward when you uh, choose to go back to shorts as well. Absolutely. I think the first thing that springs to mind for me as a tech creator for that would be to do unboxings and like the initial kind of very quick, here's what's in the box, here's my initial thoughts, and then and click up here so that you can see the full review. So kind of use it as a trailer almost for your reviews. I don't know if that would work or how accurately it's going to bridge between specific content, but that, that would be my first thoughts on how to make use of this. 
absolutely uh using shorts as like a little teaser for a longer video definitely i've seen a lot of creators try to do that and uh that's definitely one of the ways that you can implement shorts so awesome stuff so you put out a lot of content but i also understand that you happen to be a fan of vidiq so i'm curious as to how you integrate vidiq and your content creation strategy and some of the ways that you use vidiq to help you make more content better content well i would say um so yeah i've been using vidiq since uh, i guess like fall last year the big thing that i use a lot is the daily ideas i think whenever you get to the point where you're making this much content it's actually really helpful to just have some prompts there and i'll I'll not necessarily use a whole title that comes from it, but I'll mix and match like a subject from one and then the structure of another. And actually from the last uh, VidIQ podcast that I listened to, you had the guy on that was talking about the hooks and the email that he does every Monday morning. Uh, and so I actually experimented with that a little bit this week and did how Apple's cheapest Mac changed my life as a video title, just using one of those hooks that he was really pushing. And, and it's actually worked quite well. So um, I'm going to be playing around with a bit more of that. Regret is going to be next on my list, I think. <laughs> oh, so you go down the, the title that I talked to Jake Thomas mm -hmm. about on the podcast. Nice, nice. Yeah, man. Uh, I've been I experimenting with some of the uh, titles of the podcast, messing with those formulas and things that we talked about as well. So yeah, it's crazy. But again, it worked because it ties directly into human psychology and the way we think about things and how we respond to different things. So that stuff works and he has to prove it. And, and yeah, I'm looking at that video right now. You posted it two days ago, already has over a thousand views, which is pretty good for a channel of your size. So hey, clearly you're on something. So definitely keep experimenting with that stuff for sure, man. But yeah, I, I love how you brought up the fact that when you do use our daily ideas tool, that you don't just take it for a faith value. You try to enter, mingle different structures and things. Because that's why we try to tell you all about that tool. You don't have to use the exact title verbatim that the tool fits out. Sometimes it might not make sense, or sometimes it might just be a grouping of keywords. So it's up to you, the, the creator, to figure out how to best implement the information that the tool gives you to craft the best title for that particular video. So definitely don't just use whatever the tool fits out of you. Think about what it's fitting out at you, and then change it into something that's more viable and feasible to what you're trying to do for that particular video. So appreciate you pointing that out. Absolutely. And I think the other big thing is using that saved ideas button as well, because not everything, especially for me being a, a sort of news creator primarily, although we do a lot of work around products and people are sending me stuff all the time, which is great because I've now got a room that's absolutely packed with stuff, even though this is kind of just such a thrown together <laughs> space. It's really, really improvised. And I think one thing is if you've got a space where you can kind of hide yourself away and have everything really set up, ready to go, it makes a huge difference to being able to actually turn on the camera and make something. Because I think a massive obstacle for a lot of people is finding the time. If you can, like I've got a little sort of 40 pound teleprompter that sits up here using an old iPhone 5, which actually runs my script off of it which still syncs nicely to uh, to my Mac and everything else. Just being able to throw my phone in there, because everything's filmed on my phone normally, it just makes everything so much quicker. But I just really appreciate, especially from an Apple point of view, and obviously I love talking about the Apple tech, the fact that I can film on my phone, then airdrop it to my Mac, edit it, get it all sent out so quickly. It's it's great. Okay, okay, I got to stop you right there, because you just said something that like made me kind of be mind blown. You just said that you film everything on your phone and I'm looking at your content. I've looked at your content and it doesn't really look like it was filmed on the phone. So you are definitely doing big things. What phone are you using to film your content? 
It is not even new. This is the iPhone 12 Pro Max. So when I got this, before that, I was actually using a Lumix G7. So G7 was the camera that I always wanted when I first started. It's a 4K sensor. It's kind of old, but you can pick them up for about 400 bucks. It's now my top down that's above here. This is a, a weird little kind of bar that runs above my head and I've got a top down. It's again, super improvised. It's off a couple of shelf brackets, but it works. But yeah, I was shooting on the, the G7, had all kinds of problems with focus going out, hunt and peck for the focus. As soon as the iPhone 12 Pro Max came out, because it's got that LiDAR on it, it is locked on you for focus and it just takes a distraction out of the video. I don't shoot in 4K. Everything goes out in 1080p, but I shoot it at 2K using uh, the Filmic Pro app, which is an absolutely great little piece of kit. It gives you all of the control that you would need to basically do anything you would do with a, a professional camera. And also it's got a remote app that you can run on your iPad, which is what sits underneath for me. All of your controls come up on there and you get a preview. So you can make sure you're in focus, you are framed properly and all the rest of it. And it just then, because I shoot in 2K, it means that I can crop in and out and give it a little bit more dynamism when I'm editing. Let me get this straight. You went from a dedicated camera to shooting on your smartphone. Mm -hmm. Wow. I, I just mm -hmm. find that intriguing because I also once had the Panasonic Lumen G7 as a camera. And I know exactly what you were talking about when you talk about the focus or lack thereof. I know all about it. So I understand why you want to use something else. It's a great camera. Don't get me wrong. And I love, absolutely love the Panasonic app. It is great. But the focus, having to manually focus and stuff all the time. No, I, I'm not. I wasn't with that. But uh, I just find it's in that you were like, okay, instead of using a dedicated camera, which is going to have better image quality, you're like, I'm using my iPhone and you're doing good stuff with your iPhone. Yeah. And and honestly, the like the low light on it is really good. I'll be honest, when I shoot in the native camera app, 65, 75% of the time, the colors look better straight out of the camera. The only thing is it shoots in HDR all the time and then you have to kind of bring it down in the edit. However, when I shoot in the filmic app, like you can unlock yeah. for like yeah. an in-app purchase, you can unlock log and everything else. So you can actually get those flat color profiles if that's what you want to play around with. Honestly, for me, I kind of do a very simple color correct each time because I'm trying to get this stuff shot, edited the same morning, uploaded to YouTube and out by 1, at 1 p.m. our time. So everything has to be quick. Going up to 4K for me makes no difference. Doesn't make anything better. You're looking at my face through most of it while I talk to you about Apple News. There's no need for that to be in 4K. Nobody needs to see me in 4K. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't want that IK Day 4K? You don't think we need that? Come on now. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm surprised that MKBHD's name is still in HD. Surely he should be MKB8K by now. No, no, he, he already said he's not changing that, but that's funny though. So next, I want to talk to you about your thumbnail strategy because obviously, depending on the type of content that you, you do or we do, the strategy is going to vary, but we both do tech content. So I'm of the mindset that when you create your tech thumbnails, especially if they are for product reviews, the product should be front and center. And your thumbnails look a lot like that. A lot of the stuff in front and center. I love in some of them, how you have your faith in it and you have emotion, like you got your hand over your faith or you got a shock look or something like that. Talk to us about your thumbnail strategy for your video. So the Big thing, it's it's a love-hate relationship for me with thumbnails, to be honest. If you guys could do a daily ideas for thumbnails, I will be I will be down for that. I will pay anything that you ask me. But I'm trying, trying, trying so hard to take 
text out of my thumbnails and I'm terrible at it because I want to tell the story in it and I want it to to have that information in there. But I think the thumbnail that you're talking about was when I was talking about the the new MacBook Air, which is the the kind of blue. I bought the midnight that uh, everyone was worried was going to be an issue in terms of um, scratching and stuff like that. I've taken it on holiday already. I've taken it on vacation. I've flown with it. I've had it. It's great. It's not scratched up, but I scratched the crap out of it in Photoshop. It looked horrific by the time I'd done that thumbnail. But I think in terms of the thumbnail strategy itself, it's it's just trying to sort of grab the attention. When it's in the feed, it's got to stand out. And one thing that I do is I have a kind of template set up in Photoshop, which rounds off the corners. So it kind of looks a little bit Apple app-ish when you see it. So it kind of stands out. And it only fits, obviously, if you're on a dark mode background. If you're on a light mode, it's got little black corners. But, you know, I think most people are going to use dark mode because it looks much better, especially if they're into Macs and into tech. They're probably going to be in dark mode because dark mode is the only mode that's okay. Tell them again. Repeat that for the people in the back. (laughs) Dark mode, always. I mean, dark mode for my coffee. I don't have milk in my coffee, so dark (laughs) mode coffee. My studio, pretty dark. I'm not a light mode person. All of my t-shirts, dark mode. I mean, even this t-shirt, this was a um, a community thing that we did with the WWDC. And I have to say, trying to do merch on YouTube when you're a small creator, like you can create hundreds of designs and no one's going to buy any of them. You'll get two or three people in your audience that want them. So we did, uh, as I say, really focused on community before WWDC 2021, I want to say, when we were expecting the MacBook Pros to come and they didn't. I basically got all of my audience to submit their own uh, emojis from the iPhone and we put all of them emojis onto the t-shirt. So this is my audience that's actually on the t-shirt and we ended up doing about 250 in profit on Teespring just on this one t-shirt drop, which is, you know, it's not a huge amount of money, but that's like with zero outlay because it's, you know, it's all print on demand and, and that's great. And it now integrates with YouTube as well. So you can have that shelf down there that's a really good way if you can get your audience involved in the products that you want to put out to help out you know that's that's a really good way of getting them engaged with it too yeah it's interesting that you talk about getting the audience engaged as it relates to your merchandise because when i was first starting out i had a catchphrase that i would say in my video interview now and then immediately and somebody told me like yo viper you should turn that into a shirt so that was my very first merch i ever did i turned that catchphrase into a t-shirt and it didn't do 250 in profit, but it sold very well. There's a lot of people out there with that shirt. So it is a very special thing where you can get your audience involved in the merchandise. And because it makes them feel a part of the process of having that merchandise come together. It's one thing if they created themselves, like they come up with some random generic merchandise and they'd be like, hey, I have this merchandise, go buy it. But when the audience plays an actual hand in the creation of the merchandise, then you have something special there. And they're going to be more willing and more wanting to buy it because they had a direct hand in creating that. So that's legit what you did, man. That's definitely legit. Yeah, it was really good fun. And just having them involved, as I say, the community has been like at the core of everything that we've done on the channel. Like I've got a little Patreon set up. It's only got a handful of people on it, but those people are really core. They're on every live stream. They always come to see it. We, We did a big live stream for the first anniversary of the channel where we managed to get a whole bunch of other creators involved as well. And I have to say, like, 
if you want to work with other people, you had John Prosser on the other week. He was one of the first people to say yes to coming on the six hour live stream that we did. We had Luke Miani on there. We had Brian Tong. We had all sorts of people that just jumped in. Uh, Ian Zelbo, who actually makes a lot of the renders that you see for these videos. They all came on and just spent 15, 20 minutes with us. And, and we had a really good time. But uh, yeah, it's it, just get involved with your audience. And the other big symptom that I think is something that's because I engage with the audience throughout is that we don't have trolls. Everyone talks about the negativity that they see on YouTube in the comments. And I'm like, I don't see any of that. <laughs> it just doesn't happen. We maybe get one trolley comment a month on 20 odd videos. Yeah. I want to talk about this real quick because especially on Twitter, I think a lot of people talk about how their controversy and drama on Twitter, but did that and the other. And I'm like you, Dave, I never see it. And the reason why I never see it is because I don't follow people that put that stuff out. I don't follow people that are always negative. I don't follow people that always want to pop off at a brand or about a product. I follow positive people who are making an impact in the industry and people that I want to talk mm -hmm. to and jive with and have a relationship with. I don't follow people that are overly negative because I don't want that in my life. I don't need that. There's enough negativity out in the world. I don't want to bring that to my social media platforms and my, my experiences. So I avoid that. So... I find it interesting that you said that that stuff doesn't really, you don't see it because it, it doesn't happen in your community. And I'm the same way. I don't see it because I don't mess, I don't mess with that. I don't. And if there is a troll, they're gone. I got my head of security to take care of that. So we, we don't mess around. So I am definitely <laughs> a proponent of the idea that your social media experience is what you make it because we are the ones who curate that experience. If you don't want negativity, if you don't want the troll, don't follow them. Don't engage. Everyone says social media is an echo chamber and complains about that. Well, yeah, it is. But if you're positive and you only interact with the things that are positive, that's what you're going to see. Exactly, man. Exactly. So a lot of your content is Apple news. And just by its very nature, news in general is boring. But clearly you are doing something correct because you, your channel is growing. You got, um, you got great views on your content. So how do you take content that is inherently boring like news and make it compelling enough where people will want to come back to you time and time again i did do a sneaky trick the other day i did do something that was considered by some to be clickbait but i don't think i, I don't think i miss well, i misled people but i was not inaccurate let's say so the i think the title of the video was it had to go and it was a picture of the um the new macbook air but then in the first sort of the first sort of words of the video were it had to go with me on holiday. And, you know, so I then had pictures of it on the plane with me. And, uh, you know, it was kind of misleading people that I might have sent it back to Apple. But that wasn't the case because I think this thing's awesome. Um, even though there's been a lot of negativity around the product, unjustified, I think. But uh, everyone loves a controversy. And that's the thing. There are a lot of people out there that are making a big deal of any tiny little flaw with the product. But I think it's more important to kind of take the mickey out of them a little bit. That's the only way to actually deal with it is to be like, oh, yes, it had to go on the plane with me. All right. So I actually just talked about the recently on the VidIQ Twitter. I've asked people to uh, define what their definition of clickbait is to them. So this is a classic example of I don't know if I would call it clickbait because you delivered on the click within the first, like you said, 30 seconds of the video telling them that it went with you on a trip. But you subverted their expectations. And this is an example, I think, of what Roberta would call click-worthy. Not, it's not really clickbait, but it's click-worthy because you made the title in such an intriguing way that people, 
they had to click on it to figure out what he, what was he talking about. Or as, as you said, they probably thought that you were sending it back to Apple, but in actuality, you were just taking it with you on a trip, which I, I would have surmised is very clever. It's a magic trick or, or a joke. It's like a punchline. Yeah. My question to you is, how did your audience respond to this? Like, did they understand what you were doing or were they mad that they felt like you misled them? How did that go over with them? Oh, nobody was mad. Nobody was mad at all. It was like, oh, you had me then. You know, it, and, it, and it is, it's like a, it's a misdirect more than a, a clickbait. You know, I'm not putting in there, my MacBook caught fire and then going, yeah, it got to like 90 degrees. That's not the same. But, you know, sometimes if you do want to visually say this gets hot, you're going to put some smoke on the thumbnail. And I think that's okay because you're just visually trying to find a way of showing what heat looks like. You know, you could you could do it with an IR camera if you happen to have one. But there are certain tropes that we use, which I think people understand are not necessarily literal when we're putting them into a into a video. And I think you're allowed to kind of use a bit of artistic license to kind of visually communicate something. But in terms of trying to make the news itself interesting, I tend to take the mickey out of it as well. So like when Apple Silicon first arrived, for example, I think we were we were doing videos about how Intel should be terrified of this and how x86 should be terrified of this. And, you know, it's not Apple Silicon isn't 100 percent faster than anything else on the market, but it the amount of power that it uses it really is and like it just makes sense like it blew everyone away nobody was expecting the first Macs with apple's own chips to be as fast as they were and basically beat everything else on the market so it was really exciting to kind of poke a bit of fun at intel and go back to some of those old adverts from the past where they had a snail with an intel chip on its back using those in a an advert so you've got a bit of retro nostalgia as well as talking about the what the new stuff is as well i think it was kind of fun yeah it's always cool when you can like take content that is inherently born and make it more compelling i want to go back to what we were talking about with the clickbait situation we did something similar at vidiq a few months ago we made a video about the community tab and how youtube had changed the requirements of the community tab because it went from you had to have like i think a thousand subscribers to i think uh 500 subscribers so Instead of putting anything about the community tab in the title, I think our video title was uh, Millions of Creators Just Unlocked This. Obviously, when you start the video, you find out that we're talking about the community tab. Now, some people might feel like that was clickbait, but it wasn't really clickbait because millions of people literally did unlock the ability to have access to the community tab. So when you talk about subjects <laughs> that are less exciting like that, you have to figure out a way to jazz it up to get people to click on it. And being clickworthy is kind of an idea of how you go about doing that. It doesn't mean it's clickbait because to me, clickbait is literal bait and switch. Let's say you put a grill in a thumbnail and I click on a video and you're talking about a MacBook. I'm like, what? Where, where's the grill, bro? Like, I'm, I'm trying to cook here, but you got a MacBook and we talk about a MacBook. I'm talking about grills. I want burgers. I want hot dogs. I want Queen Baby Rays. But when I click on the video, I'm getting M2 chips and displays and keyboards. Like, this is not what I signed up for. So to me, that is what I think about when I hear clickbait. I think about that, not a video being clickworthy. So, I say if you all want to think about how to get people to click on titles and things that they might not necessarily click on, think about figuring out how to make your content a little bit more click wordy. You know what, though? I could go for one of those burgers now. I'm really, right. you, you sparked my hunger. But yeah, the, right. the community tab, I remember that video that you guys put out. And the community tab is really something that everyone with access to it should be using. Throw some polls up on there, get some interaction. Like when I have a gap between videos because life happens, I'll always go into the community tab and post up going to be making a video later today what do you want to know about 
hashtag IK answers, get them to put the questions in there. And then I could use it as a Q&A and that kicks everything off and we can move into it. And quite often they'll ask me about what I was going to talk about in the news anyway. So I'll headline the news article and then cut to their question on screen with their, uh, you know, with their username and stuff. So people love a shout out. Everyone loves a little bit of attention on themselves. And then, yeah, we just crack on with the news as I was going to do it anyway. But uh, but it's just framed as being their question. Absolutely. So I want to talk about something that you did a month ago. Okay. I got to be careful how I word this because I don't want people. Yeah, I thought we were keeping this to ourselves. (laughs) So when you're a smaller creator and you want to grow on YouTube, but nobody knows who you are, who you are, and they might not click on some of your video. One of the ways that as a smaller creator, you can get attention is by talking about a larger creator. So you did something similar to this about a month ago Mm -hmm. where you did a video talking about something that you disagree with with Mac Tech. Yeah. Now, I love the way that you did this because the thumbnail said Mac Tech wrong, but the moment they click on the video, you put out that disclaimer that you are a big fan of Mac Tech, you're not going at him, this, that, and the other. He just said something in this video that he didn't agree with, and you want to talk about why you didn't agree with it and what you thought was the actual thing that was happening in the video. And I love how you did that because, number one, as a smaller creator, that's the way to get eyes on your content. But number two, you did it in a respectful way. Again, you didn't go at him. You didn't try to, to, to degrade his work or anything like that. You simply stated your case. You were like, all right, I don't believe this is going to happen. I disagree with Math Tech, and this is why I disagree. So talk about what went into that video, because obviously, again, there had to be some planning. I'm pretty sure that's not something that was spur the moment. Obviously, you, you watched the video that he made. You didn't agree. So take us through your process of doing that particular video. Oh, no, it was pretty spur of the moment, because I think I re- reacted to it the day after. However, yeah, uh, Vadim from Max Tech uh, is someone that I do talk to on Twitter quite a bit. So he's someone that I, I do have a lot of respect for. And the fact that he's got time to talk to people like myself when, you know, they're on 100,000 view, uh, no, 100,000 subscribers or a million subscribers. They're just they've just about hit a million, I think. Whereas I'm sitting here on my 11K. I think I decided to challenge them when they were on about 960K to see which of us could get to a million first as well as part of this. But yeah, it was more of a case of, I watched their video. Yes, the test that they did is valid. It it kind of does do what they were saying. But I was like, but this isn't a use case that this piece of tech is for. It's the cheapest MacBook that, that exists. It's uh, it's the one that's designed to be for consumers to do office type stuff on. So why are you trying to transcode 8K video on it and wondering why it's getting hot? Like, it didn't make any sense at all to me why that was the the use case. And there were also other guys on YouTube that were looking through and they were basically trying to replicate the tests and they weren't having the same results. They were staying at reasonable temperatures. So it was a very, very niche, very specific issue that they had. And I just wanted to kind of communicate, like, I understand that it's annoying that you can't do everything in the world on this one consumer grade laptop but it's also not really for that if you look back a couple of years a macbook air would struggle to open microsoft word whereas now the fact you can edit 4k timelines on it without any issues at all is just absolutely mind-boggling so don't diss it for not being able to do 8k and like make marquez's videos on a daily basis and render them as quickly as something else did you get any feedback from math tech when you put that video out because you literally tagged them in the video yeah yeah uh, like yeah we tagged them in the video title and uh yeah they got into the comment section and they 
gave us a little statement and I read it out on the next video as well. So they literally just sort of came in and said, look, this is what happened. We This is why we did it. People are interested in it. And I was like, yeah, I understand that people are interested in it, but you don't have to make 14 videos that are all about exactly this one issue. <laughs> Got you. But yeah, I want to highlight that again, because that is a way that you can go about growing as a small creator. But again, you want to be respectful to your fellow creator, because once you burn that bridge, there is no going back. And that's not a bridge that you want to burn as any creator. Okay, what's your channel size is? You don't want to burn the bridges because the creator community is all we all we have is each other. So you don't want to get old burning bridges like that. But if you see something that you don't agree with, and you can make a video about it in a tasteful way, then that's definitely something that we're not going to poo poo at. So I like the way that you handle that. I mean, that being said, I don't think Android or Microsoft are going to sponsor my videos anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's another matter entirely. <laughs> so I am curious, you have, you've been doing YouTube for like well, about two years now, I would say? Yeah, it, in a real way. We, we did a little bit, as I say, before that. With the bartending thing, it was more podcasts that I also threw at YouTube, because why not? <laughs> gotcha. Okay, so in the time that you've been doing YouTube, what is something that you know now that you wish you would have known when you first started? The title and the thumbnail is the whole game. Uh, the content can be as good as you like, but if nobody's watching it in the first place, then it means nothing. However, once you've got your titles and your thumbnails right, the content's got to stand up to it as well, because otherwise they're not coming back. Uh, and that's the biggest thing, like thumbnail and title first, then make sure that the content is killer so that they actually want to come back and click the next video too. Now, I got to ask you, when you are going through your creative process, do you have your title and thumbnail made first before you make the video or do you do those after you do the video? I wish I did them first. <laughs> but the oh, problem Dave, is, on, I know, I know. There's a handful of times when I do and sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. If I put an iPhone in my video though, my audience doesn't care. If I put a Mac in it or a render of a Mac that doesn't exist, they love it. That's how niche my audience is at this point. But... Yes, I have an idea of what it's going to be. And I also have an idea based on the topics that I'm going to cover in a video. The biggest thing that I always struggle with, though, is when I've got multiple topics in a single video, which one do I go with as the kind of headliner? Because sometimes I get into my flow because I script a lot of my news stuff. And then when I do answers, when I do the IK of answers, that is all off the cuff. So the only thing that I actually read from the teleprompter for those is the question, and then they're answered completely off the cuff. And sometimes they become that interesting that you think to yourself, well, actually, this is the bit that I need to put into the video title, because that's what's going to actually draw people in. But yeah, I, I really want to do the stuff first. But because so much of the work that I do in terms of news stuff is such a quick turnaround in a lot of cases i have to prepare stories and then film and then work out what is going to be the lead yeah i uh i was talking to another creator about this recently and they said that uh what they started to do and put the most enticing topic at the very beginning of the video and i was like wow wouldn't you say that to the end there but they're like no you put it at the video because number one it delivers on the click immediately and number two they found that when they put the most enticing topic at the beginning it kind of helped keep people watching throughout the rest of the video, which I found kind of odd, but it's interesting. It's an interesting thought. Yeah, that's been working really well for John Prosser, yeah. which is the person yep. that said it, it to you. I remember now from that Absolutely. podcast. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one thing that I have been focusing on a lot, though, recently is actually that first 30 seconds and the hook of the video. So I'll basically break down each story slash question to a two or three word kind of tease, and I'll 
just rapid fire through them at the beginning, throw an image or a bit of footage over each one and the text onto the screen. So I'm trying to make it really engaging in terms of those first few seconds, especially if anyone's going to just mouse over as well in the feed so that they can kind of see a little bit of what's coming up. But I also make those punny quite often. I do try and have a little bit of humor in the videos as well to try and keep it interesting. And because I'm British, that basically means sarcasm. We don't do humor much beyond sarcasm if you've ever watched john oliver that's what i aspire to and don't get anywhere close to <laughs> no doubt man i cave dave this has been an amazing podcast man i appreciate you making the time if people want to find you on a social media where what are the best places to find you at well if you put i cave dave into anything basically all one word i think twitter and instagram it might have an underscore in there somewhere but you know fool around with that see where it fits for you best you can find me on that. And obviously, uh, I, I also make YouTube videos. So that's a good place too. Awesome, man. Thank you for being on the podcast today. For those of you all listening, I will have all of this information in the show notes. So go down there, check out Dave. You make good content, especially if you are into Apple and everything Apple. Go check out his YouTube channel. The man is legit. Appreciate all of you listeners listening. I'll be back next week with another episode of Tube Talk presented by VidIQ. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tube Talk, brought to you by vidIQ. Head over to vidIQ.com slash Tube Talk for today's show notes and previous episodes. Enjoy the rest of your video making day.